0: Come and worship you. and ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're continuing in 2 Kings chapter 8, starting with verse 1. We're still in the stories of Elisha. And verse 1 Then spoke Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your, your household, and sojourn wherever you can, sojourn, for the Lord hath called a famine. And it shall also come upon the land for seven years. And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray you, all the great things that Elisha has done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. All right, so we're looking here that uh, we're after the famine. Remember, we just had the siege of Jerusalem that happened also during the famine. We talked about how people were eating a donkey's head. They were eating dove's dung and all that, all that wonderful thing because they were starving to death in the siege of the city in the middle of a famine. So now we're at the end of this period. God has delivered them from, from the battle. Uh, if you recall that battle we talked about last week, the angel... God sent an angel that made the people hear chariots and horses, and they started running for their life and died (laughs) for the most part. Um, So God delivered his people. And so now we have Elisha, and we're going backwards in time at this point. It says, then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. This would be the Shulamite woman, if you remember, that, that he had talked to in the past. And arise and go into your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord hath called a famine and it shall last in the land for seven years. So he warns her there's going to be a famine for seven years. You might want to go someplace someplace else. Uh, I'm intrigued by this because when when, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law and them left Israel, they were criticized for not having enough faith in God to stay. Uh, other people have left. We see that, uh, we remember Jacob during the middle of the big seven-year famine went to Egypt. And the long-term consequences were is that the people were put into slavery. So God usually in the Bible tells people to stay put and trust. This person was told by the man of God, go, go someplace else. There's going to be a really big big uh, famine go someplace else and she obeyed this was the woman who also uh, uh, built a house for excuse me this isn't the Shulamite woman this is the woman that built the house for for Elijah Elisha to stay in and he would stay there and her son died and he prayed for her in in, uh, 2nd Kings chapter 4 But she's been obedient. She's honored the man of God. And now he's giving her a heads up. Go someplace else. (laughs) It's going to be really hard for seven years. Go find someplace that you can live. And she chooses of all places, Philistia. (laughs) All right. Uh, The Philistines are an enemy of Israel, have always been an enemy of Israel. They go all the way back to to the judges. Uh, So there's always been problems with the Philistines. And she goes to live in, in there for eight years, uh, for seven years, and rides out the famine in, in, in Philistia. Uh, and, you know, just her obedience, it's kind of interesting that her obedience was such that she did whatever, whatever was asked for. You know, uh, when he said, you're going to have a child, she goes, well, I don't don't tease me. I'm kind of I'm I'm on the older side. Don't don't tease me. He says, no, you're going to get it. So she prepared. She prepared him a a room to stay. She honored him as a man of God. And then when he says, leave, she leaves. And I think this is interesting for us. We need to be so walking with God that when God tells us something, (laughs) we get obedient, even when it makes no sense, because she's told to leave home, leave and abandon your home for seven years, and then you can come back. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting statement because this isn't a time when people didn't really leave home. You know, we don't think it, we don't think in our day and age of anything. You know, leave home, no big deal. I'm gone. You know, we don't have we don't have the uh, joint families where you lived on the farm of the family and you have your your uncles and your brothers and your sisters all within you know 20 miles of each other in different parts of the farm. You know, whatever. You know, in our day, we just take off and. Leave our family, and but this was not true in that day. And she, he was, she just went out, and left. You know, went out to survive. And then verse three says that it came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned out of the land of Philistine, out of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry to the king for her house and for her land. So this is kind of an interesting thing. She comes back. Uh, somebody is now living in her home. Uh, we don't know whether she sold it, uh, whether she just left it and somebody took over. But this tells us she got back and uh, it's not hers anyway. <laughs> it is hers, but it's not hers. Uh, in Israel, every seven years, you had the year of Jubilee where your land was returned to you, your debts released, and then the golden, excuse me, your debts were released, and on the golden Jubilee, all your land was returned to you. So every 50 years, your land would be returned to you. Because God said, I gave you the land, you cannot sell your land forever. So you could not buy a piece of property, you almost technically rented it during that period of time. So if you had been right after the year of Jubilee, you could rent it, you would purchase it, rent it for 50 year period, and it would go back to that family at the end of 50 years. If you were on the 49th year, you'd only get to use their land one year. But God also understood that. He goes, you cannot charge them full price for that one year. So you wouldn't be able to say, well, my, my, my building's worth you know, $200,000 and you've only got one year, you'd get one fiftieth 50th of, of that money because they knew at the end of that year they were going to have to give you back your land and your property. So God had already put in rules to, to say that you bought it at the beginning, you paid full price, you used it for fifty years and anywhere in between you you lost time <laughs> time in that process. But she gets back and she goes to the king. And she and it says she went forth to cry and this is to cry out in distress. She's going to go to the king's parlor and hope to get an audience with the king. And this was something that would happen the king the, the kings would have court. They would be in their palace and you know we sometimes don't really realize this, but the first thing you walked into when you walked into the palace was the throne room because that's where the king would hold court. And that's where anybody could have access to the throne room. So she was going to go into the court to hope to be able to speak with the king about her problem. And you've got to understand, this was a big deal. You had to go with a gift for the king. You had to go... You had to make an appointment to be seen. And you hoped that you went on a day that didn't have a full schedule. Uh, just like our courts, except you can't just walk into our courts. <laughs> the king, you, you, you tried to make an appointment, but that for the regular person, that didn't happen. And so she's going to go in here. And this is, you know, just as a side note, we, we read in, in Job how Satan met with the angels at the court of heaven. That is the access that Satan has into heaven is at that front courtroom where he can go in and he can accuse the the, the, the believers before God because he's entering into the public area of the castle. And it's the very first room you walk into in the castle would be the courtyard. Now, beyond the courtyard would have your entertaining areas and everything. And then beyond that would be their private areas where you... You didn't go unless you had special invitations. And most people didn't get to go beyond that public area unless you were a noble or or invited to a special party or something. And then you could go into the feasting rooms and and those rooms. So she's going to go to see the king, hoping to have an audience with the king. (laughs) And then we see this little thing in here. The king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. Now remember... Gehazi is Elisha's servant, who, when Nahum came to be healed of his leprosy, and, and Elijah, Elisha said, "No, we're not taking the gifts for you." Uh, the Naaman left after he got healed. Gehazi decided that uh, Elisha was too easygoing on him, ran after Naaman and said, um, "We've got some visitors, and we and we need." Uh, a half a shekel of, of sil, uh, silver and, uh, and two, two uh, raiments of garments. And when he got back, Elisha said, what did you do? He go, and he lied. said, I didn't go anywhere. He goes, wasn't I there when what, didn't I see you in spirit? And then he goes, your punishment is that you will have leprosy from, for the rest of your life and your family will have leprosy on them. Uh, so this is the same Gehazi. What's he doing in the king's palace? I have no idea. He's got He's a leper. <laughs> Uh, but he's giving, he's answering the questions of the king, and, the, and they were talking about, and the king says, tell me of all the great things that Elisha w- was done. Now this is kind of interesting that King jo- Joram was trying to find out more about Elisha because he doesn't like Elisha. He worships other gods, and yet he's got Gehazi, a leper, <laughs> to tell him all about the different things that his ex-master has done and so he's telling them all the great deeds and then he starts telling him about how the king had restored a dead body and he says and, he, and he's talking about how this woman had had their son restored and he looks up and lo and behold who does he see the woman whose son has been healed or resurrected not not he well, technically healed but uh, and he says that's her <laughs> yeah can you imagine She's coming in hoping to talk to the king about her issue. And she gets pointed out to the king to be talking about something totally different. Yeah, and this is something that we need to keep God has so much more in store for us than we usually want. We go to God with our hat in our hands thinking God, if you will just meet my give me food on the table today, I'll be happy, and God's thinking. Well, gee, I was going to send you to a banquet and and fill your fill your pantry with with uh, food, and all you want to be f- is to be fed for one for one meal. This woman is going there with her hat in her hand, you know, saying, "I just ho- I just want my property back. I just want to be able to talk to the king and get my property back." And Gehazi points her out, and she gets questioned by the king, and the king asks her about it, and she. Uh, she told him all of the, all of the, all about it. Probably somehow slipped in her pro- her her problem and why she was in the palace in the first place. He might have even asked, you know, what what are you doing here today, you know? But he asked her about her son. D- did he die? What? How did how did this happen? Matching up the story of Gehazi to her story because that's got to be one of the phenomenal stories that you're not going to believe when you first hear it. You know, what does this Gehazi think? You know, the resurrected erection. A boy died and he was brought back to life and then the woman was able to validate the story and then the good news for her is verse, the second half of verse 6 so the king appointed a certain officer saying restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land and even until now she got a special person to go take care of the, the business straight from the king So when she now shows up at her home and they're going to kick whoever's in their home out, find out how much money that, you know, how much fruit, you know, vegetables and fruit or whatever was produced by their land. And I'm not sure whether the king was paying for that or they were going to make the person who was living there pay for it. I don't know. This doesn't go that deep into it. But the king says, restore. She just wanted to have her property back. Now she's going to get her property back plus... All that that property had produced for seven years. Now, granted, it's a famine. It did not produce much in seven years during this period of time. But still, still she's getting back much more than she was hoping for. And this does go to show us God's blessings for us are that way. He wants to bless us with so much more than we ever think or, or anticipate. He promises to meet our needs. He wants to meet some of our wants. Does that mean He's going to give us everything we want? Absolutely not. But He says, He's a good Father. He wants to bless us. And if He can bless us and and we will keep remembering Him for who He is and we will not get proud and arrogant about it and forget Him, He will give us all the blessings. Why do most Christians not get full blessings? Well, because most of us forget that God gave it to us. And we see that over and over. It's so easy. I've seen it in life, my life at various times. I've seen it in others' lives. They get blessed and start to forget God. Many times in my lifetime, I've seen people get really blessed. They get a nice job, a nice house. They get their three or four cars. They get their, their, their RV. They get their vacation home. They get their boat. They get their motorcycles. And the next thing you know, they're not coming to church anymore. And you go to say, well, what do you, well, you know, I've been up at the vacation, vacation lodge, I've been out on the water with my boat, you know, I'm just so, I'm just so busy using, using my toys, (laughs) you know, and it's like, well, didn't God give you those toys? Well, yeah, I really believe he did Then, And you're forgetting God. And the sad thing is eventually God takes the toys away. If we forget him, he will take away our blessings. Now, if we stay honoring him, there is nothing wrong with being rich. Abraham, Job were some of the richest men that have ever been recorded in the Bible. Solomon was one of the, was one of the richest in the, in the world until he forgot God and God took it all away. There have been in our, in our recent past, people who have made millions of dollars were millionaires, but they honored God by giving him 90% of all their business, business income and they, made, they were millionaires. People like the founder of Caterpillar, he gave God 90% of his money. Uh, J.C. Penney, uh, Sears, all these guys were good Christian men that gave away more money than anybody could imagine and were still millionaires (laughs) at the end of their life because of honoring God. And God says, Oh, you're honoring me and you're remembering me, blessing them, blessing their socks right off. Uh, this woman is going to get blessed well beyond anything she ever anticipated just because of her obedience to God and seeking after him. And so we see this process going on where God is wanting to do things. This is a quick little vignette vignette about how she got blessed. and And I think about this sometimes is we look through the scriptures at people that just honored God and were obedient. Even when you look at somebody as simple as Esther, Esther was told to save her people and she had to go stand before the king without being called and could have lost her life. And her statement was, if I perish, I perish. As she went into obedience to go see the king to save her people. And this is one of the things that happened. Are we ready to stand for God no matter what? And this gets to be a pretty tough, tough area sometimes. Sometimes it's a really big deal to stand for God. We are getting into more and more dangerous times for Christians and even in America where it may become a place where we are taking our freedoms in hand for stand for God, maybe even to die you know, by standing for God. We need to decide today that we're going to stand for God no matter what. And that will start with small steps. Are we obedient in small things? If we cannot be obedient in something small... <laughs> there is no way that we'll be obedient when it comes to something big. If somebody can't be obedient to God's word in, to, in day-to-day living, and they want to tell me that they're going to die for Jesus, I'm going to go, I don't think so. You know, not unless God really changes you between now and that period of time, but you know, when somebody does not faithfully attend, attend church, does not faithfully read their Bible, does not faithfully, you know, Give, give their tithes and offerings, then they tell me that they're going to be willing to give up their life for God. You know, it's like, no, don't think so. I've heard it many times. Well, if I just won the lottery, I'd make sure I gave God 10%. You're not giving God 10% now, so there is no way you're going to give Him 10% of a, of a big check. And besides which, a lottery is a gambling, and God's probably not going to honor that anyway. You know, but you hear it all the time. If, if I just had... If all my needs were met and I didn't owe any bills, then I would, give, I would give, God, give, give God my money. The sad thing is, the statistics tell us that the poor people give a ten, are more likely to give a tithe than the rich. The richer people are, the less likely they are to tithe their money. And I kind of understand that. Back when I was poor and my whole tithe for the month was like $400, it goes, what can you do with $400? Uh... Most of my tithes and offerings are well over that nowadays. Yeah, in the, and definitely in a month period, they're way, way over that. And I can understand, you know, when you know, you're looking at a tithe that's only about $100, $200, what do you do with $200? You give it to God and let God bless it. When your tithe is, you know, $1,500 or $2,000, it's like, uh, God, you know, I can do a lot of money with this. You know, I can do a lot with this money. Do you really, do you really need my money? Yeah. And the answer is God does not need our money, but he's saying, do you trust me to give? And, you know, it's very important. People will go, oh, how much should you give? Well, if you listen to a lot of the older guys like Spurgeon and, and uh, Moody, they go, whatever, whatever you give has to be something that makes you trust God. So even, there are people that could tithe with not a problem. Giving a tithe is not going to matter. They, they don't owe money. They make enough money. They pay all their bills. Tithe is what God said about the Pharisees. They're just giving off the top. Who did he say gave the most money when Jesus was with the disciples at the uh, temple? Widow. The widow who gave two pennies. Two mites, two pennies. Not even, not even a penny. Yeah, by, and it said that was her, that was all she had. Yeah. You know, she gave everything. Wasn't much as humanly speaking, but God says she's trusting me. And I've told you all, she's one of the ones I want to find in heaven. I want to find the lady that gave the two pennies and see what happened when she went home. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I want to know the rest of that story. Because I'm very sure she didn't go home and curl up and die of hunger and be kicked out of home. I am sure that God blessed her and I really would like to know. I'd like to know the rest of that story. Because she trusted. The scribes and Pharisees, they put in lots of money, lots of lots of tithes and offering, but Jesus said it was out of their abundance. He goes, They gave they gave out of their abundance they weren't even gonna miss it. So our question is: when we give, are we giving to God in something that says, God, I trust you to meet my needs? One of the hardest things to do when you're giving is to to give whatever you've told God you're going to give, even though it might mean that it's going to be hard to pay the bills. Because then you have to trust God. And this is something that is very important. Obedience. Even in little areas, obedience is very powerful. All right, we continue here with another story. Uh, verse 7. And Elisha came to Damascus, and ben the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come come here. And the king said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Haziel went to meet him, and he took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burdened, and came and stood before him and said, your son Benad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go say unto him, You may surely recover, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And Haziel said, Why you weep, my lord? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds will you set on fire. And their young men will you slay with the sword. And will dash their children and, sh- and rip their women with children. And Haziel said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that you shall be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master who, who said to him, what, what says Elisha to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick blanket, dipped it in water, and spread it on upon his face so that he died. And Haziel became king in his stead. So here we have Elisha leaving Israel and going to Syria, and the capital of Syria, Damascus. And when he gets there, Benadad, the king, and this is the king that's already been attacking Israel, being, being a pain in the neck to Israel. He was the one that was, was uh, trying to take them. And he is sick, and he hears, Elisha's in town. Elisha, the man of God. Now Benadad's also the one that had sent Naaman to Israel to be healed. So he knows firsthand that Elisha has power with God to do things. So he decides he wants to find out from the man of God, am I going to get healthy? Which means that he was pretty sick. You know, he he thought he was sick sick enough to die. And so he calls his servant, Haziel, and he says, take a present in your hand and go and to the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him saying shall I recover again he knows, the, he knows the routine you go to see somebody important and you take a present Now, most of this has been lost in our day and age <laughs> but in that day and age you, you went to see the king you took a present you went to go see the elders you took a present you went to see the man of God you took a present uh, you, you went to go to the, the temple of some, any God you took a present it just was what you did and so he says, get a present. And it says, so Haziel went to meet him, and he took a present with him. Even of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burdened and stood before him. Now, there's a lot of question. Did he take enough stuff to fill 40 camels? Or, because he was in the Middle East, was he just doing, being very showy? You know, putting one or two things on each of the 40 camels. Either way, it's a pretty big gift. All right. Even if he only put one thing on 40 camels, that's 40 whatever it was that he was bringing to him. And he's bringing the best of Damascus. So he's bringing him some clothing. He's bringing him uh, some, you know, Persian rugs or something. He's he's loading the camels with some stuff. Uh, and there is debate, you know, as to whether he loaded 40 camels or he just used 40 camels to to bring this. All right. All uh, right. And then, of course, there's the debate is, did Elisha take the gift? Yeah. <laughs> All right. He did not take the gift from ha- uh, Naaman that was, that was offered to him. So we don't know. Did he follow the same pattern in this one? Or did he go ahead and accept it? Because this is a different, different, different time and different period. The Bible does not tell us. So 40 camels, so well, I don't think he got the camels. He probably got the stuff on the camels. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it's, uh, this is one of the reasons we don't know what exactly what, you know, all we know if you've watched any kind of show about the Middle Eastern thing, they'll bring these caravans and they'll do all kinds of shows. They'll use more, more camels than they need and they'll have the soldiers and the dancers and the acrobats and, and all these things going on and driving a show and that's not far-fetched from history. All right. It is what is done. They make a big production out of these gifts saying you know we're, we're going to show you how rich we are as we honor you <laughs> uh, so they're going in and it is probably that he didn't get 40 full camel loads of, of stuff uh, but we're not going to rule that out all right? and the question is did he, did he accept the gift and that's another, another side of the coin altogether. And so he sees Elisha he's bringing all these in and he says I've been told by Benedon, the king who sent me, and he asked, shall I recover? Shall I get healthy? And Elisha said unto him, say, go and say to him, you may certainly recover or revive, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. Now this is kind of a contradictory statement when you think about it. You're going to get get, uh, healthy from your sickness, but you're going to die. All right. Well, that would be true of anybody anyway. Even if you do get healthy of your sickness, you're going to die before, the, before, you, before, you, before long. Uh, you might have a long time or a short time, but you're going to die. <laughs> and it could be that simple. But he sets in motion, I believe, the plan from Haziel to murder, murder the king. Well, because he's going to tell him, you're, God says you're going to be king. And he's going to take his first opportunity, literally his first opportunity to make it happen. And, you know, and it says he, he shall surely die. And then it says he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. This means he stared at him. All right. All right. He settled. He maintained. He fixed his gaze on Haziel to the point where Haziel became disconcerted more than ashamed uh, now had, maybe he had plans to kill the king all along and you know this is and he's beginning to think uh, this guy knows what I'm thinking or does he know what I'm thinking uh, if you've ever been in you know, the presence of somebody who really knows God and they get shown what God is what's going on in people's lives it's very can be disconcerting I went to a Bible study one time where a guy was able to t- just look at people and God would tell him what was going on in people's lives. And he would talk to people, you know, he'd just say, this is what God says, you, you know, you need to stop doing this or You're, you've are you been doing this, you know, keep doing this. And and people would look at him and go, how in the world did you know that stuff? And they'd look at their friend that brought him and go, you t-? And they go, no, I didn't even. But he did this all the time. That was one of his gifts. His, he had a gift of discernment that was... Almost scary, especially if you had a sinful lifestyle. He yeah. would be very scary. You know, is God going to reveal to him what, <laughs> what I've been doing? Here, so I think Haziel was already having some plans of, I'm going to take the, you know, given a chance, I'm going to take the king. And so he's sitting there and Elisha just stares at him. Just stares at him. Then it says he started weeping. He started to cry. Now this has got to be something that's a little bizarre. You went there for the king to find out if the king was going to revive. The the man of God stares at you and then starts crying. And naturally he asks, why are you crying? And we see that Haziel is not a very nice man by what he's going to be told that he's going to do. He goes, I know the evil that you will do. This is just a a a person within the household of Ben Ben Benedad right now. He goes, "You will burn the strong cities, the strongholds and cities of Israel. You will the young men will you slay by the sword. You will dash or cut up their children. You will rip open the women with child or cut them open. All right, he. This is not a nice guy." (laughs) Alright. The first two you could go, okay, he's just gonna fight with them and you know, you know, he's gonna win battles. But now you look at him and he says he's killing the kids and, and killing the pregnant women. Uh, not a nice guy. And Haziel says to him, you know, how can I do that? I'm just a I'm just a dog. I'm an insignificant person. I'm just a you know, low-ranking person. You know, how could I do those? Great, you know, looks like looks, those great things, this great thing. Okay. How am I leading to battle when I'm just a, a nobody? How am I destroying cities? How am I going to kill children and women? You know, uh, again, did he already have his plans to kill the king and, and, and revolt and he's still trying to play it off? You know, what makes you think this is going to happen? And Elisha just looked at him and says, God has shown me that you're going to be king. Very interesting statement. You're, God has shown me that you're going to be king. And so he left. Left Elisha went back to the king. Was asked, what did he say? He goes, you're gonna, you're going get, you're gonna get better. You're gonna get better. Didn't tell him the other half that he was gonna die. Uh, the man of God says you're gonna get, you're gonna get over your sickness. Then he goes out and he gets a great big. Blanket, carpet, uh, whatever you want to call it, a thick garment. It says, he wets it down and puts it over his face, basically strangles him. All right, uh, and then he took over being king, and and he reigned in in st- uh, stead. Straight up murder. Now he's probably looking at it. Well, if he was really strong enough, he could have gotten that thing off his, off his, uh, <laughs> off his face. Who knows how he justified it. Uh, but, you know, if you've ever had a wet blanket on you, you know how heavy those things can get. And th- you know, this one was thrown over him so that his face was covered and, and probably done in the middle of the night. Uh, so that he really couldn't defend himself. And Haziel apparently has some, something to do with a personal, personal servant of his so that he had access to him. Because he's the one that gets to go in and out and talk to the king and hand, deliver his messages. So here we see a murder. And... One of the things you see also in this is Elisha gave the full message to the people person from the word of God even though it was going to cause problems for Israel. God oftentimes will tell us to say or do something that might cause problems. And we need to be ready to obey. And we're living in an age where it's going to be hard to take Christian stance in the world. Because the world is trying to twist everything and make people that disagree with them, with them look bad. All right, We see this even in our political system right now. They're trying to have everybody look bad on one side You know that dared to say anything that wasn't the accepted belief. We as Christians are in that predicament quite often where we hold God's word and people look at us and say, how can you believe that way? How can you you know be so far behind the times you need to evolve with the rest of us you are you are from the stone age if you believe that fornication is a sin you believe adultery is a sin you believe homosexuality is a sin you are just way out of step with time you've got to you've got to get modern you've got to you've got to follow us and if we don't obey and don't follow them life is going to get more and more difficult for christians and we need to be ready we need to be prepared to take a stand for god even if it causes us the loss of our freedom and history says that it will history says that we will lose our freedoms because the remnant is never accepted for the long period of time and we see it if you look back into the days of hitler you saw the the jews being arrested but you also saw christians who stood up for the jews and stood up for god that were arrested We see it in the Muslim world where Christians are arrested and murdered all the time. It's coming. We need to prepare our hearts for what's coming. And I know I keep mentioning this a lot lately, but it is really true. We need to be ready because we're going to get to the place where if we're not looking at what's coming, we're going to be surprised by it. And if we're surprised by it, we're not not making our plans. And I've said this over and over again, the time to decide how you're going to react to something or whether you're going to reject some sin is not when you're in the middle of that sin. The time to decide whether you're going to uh, have uh, mar- uh, sex outside of marriage is not when you're in the back seat of the car or in the, you know, uh, in the park or something. You know, is not the time to be deciding uh, what my purity standards are. You need to have your purity standards decided long before that event. We need to decide, I will not turn away from God before I'm challenged to turn away from God. And even then, it will be difficult. Peter denied Jesus three times in the court, the court of the high priest. And the third time was to a young girl. And that he swore and cursed that he didn't know Jesus. You know, now, when, when, Paul, when, Paul, when Peter made that statement, I will not turn away from you, He meant it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he drew a sword and was ready to fight the entire army that was coming to take Jesus away. And Jesus said, put your sword away. He's ready to fight an army and just less than an hour or two later, he's denying Jesus to children. He meant it when he said, I'm going to follow Jesus. He meant it when he said, I won't deny you. But Jesus had said, you will. So he had no choice in the matter. He was going to deny Jesus, and Jesus knew that he would. But if we start with the wrong attitude, we haven't gotten ready to stand for him, we won't stand for him. And just to make even life more difficult, how many times have we not witnessed to somebody because there were other people around that might make fun of us or it was the wrong, wrong place or the wrong time or we didn't want to make them mad or we didn't want to upset the, the, the relationship that we had with that, that person? We do it all the time. So we need to make this decision that we are going to stand for God. Now, does that mean we go out and we purposely get ourselves into trouble? No, but it also means that when we're asked point blank, you know, we stand for it. When I'm at work, do I go around telling everybody that homosexuality and fornication is wrong? No, because most of them are doing it. And it's not necessarily my place. But if they ask me point blank, I'm telling them, yes, God says it's wrong. And it sometime may end up meaning that my job will be lost because of what I've been asked to do. But you know what? We've got to be ready to stand. Must. We don't go out and try to be a nuisance. Don't try to be an irritant. But we also have to be honest with people. The last thing we want is when they stand at the white throne judgment for them to look over at us and say, You never told me. Now, and unfortunately, there are many Christians that are going to have family and friends standing before the white throne judgment that will look over them and said, you knew this was coming? Now, I don't know if that will actually happen, but you can picture it happening. They're looking over in the stands at their, at their family and friends and going, you knew this was happening, and you never told me that I needed to know Jesus? It would be a very sad period of time. And even, even if they didn't say anything, just the look. You can picture the accusing look that you would get. Like you knew this was coming and you never shared it. And this is why I challenge us all the time. Have we at least spoken to our family and friends? That doesn't mean every single time we see them. (laughs) But do they know the gospel message? Do they know they're headed to hell without Jesus Christ? Because hell is eternal. And it is not something that is is easy for them. It'll be harsh. It'll be torment. And if they don't know and we haven't helped to share, then we're guilty. We're guilty of them headed to hell. And I can tell you and I've shared this with you, I have really bad gout pains a lot of times. I wouldn't wish gout on anybody and there's no way that I wish that anybody would go to hell. All right. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. So I share. I tell people, I tell them how to get to heaven. I tell them that Jesus died for their sins and that they need to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that that will get them into heaven. Good works don't get you to heaven and all these other things that they want to depend on aren't going to get you to heaven. They need to know Jesus Christ. And we don't need to have a long, long, drawn-out conversation with people to give the gospel. I've shared with people, you can give the gospel in about 30 seconds we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. We need to accept his salvation to be able to go to heaven. That's the gospel. Now the gospel is much more, we have to repent from our sins and Jesus rose from the dead. But even if you want to include those, you're still less than a minute to be able to share the gospel message with people. We need to lift him up and share him with people. Because it's the only thing that's important in the long run. And people go, well, I might lose a friend. I'd rather lose them now, having told them about Jesus, than have them be my friend all my life and go to hell. If, if they're going to be that shallow in this life, then I might as well get it over with early. And this is the problem. People make friends and they, they put years in their friendship and then they get afraid to tell them about Jesus because they might not like me anymore if I tell them about Jesus, you're better off, get Jesus in the forefront in the beginning. And then if they still want to be your friend, great. (laughs) You know, at least they now know where you stand. They now know how to get to heaven. But you invest time and effort into that and then you're like, wow, what if they don't like the message about Jesus? What if they don't want to be my friend now that I've invested hours, days, months, years, decades? (laughs) Now they don't want to be my friend, and we've invested all this energy into being their friend. This is one of the problems I have with the idea of friendship evangelism. Friendship evangelism has this idea that I make somebody so much of a friend, and they get to see that I'm so godly that they'll eventually ask me about Jesus. Well, that works in about one in a hundred cases. Most of the time, they're not going to turn to Jesus, because it wasn't important enough for you to talk about and usually when you do finally get around to trying to talk, they're going, well, I knew you were different, but, you know, I didn't, you know, you're telling me this is why? Now, in an acquaintance, it might be okay for somebody, you know, not to be able to talk to them, and then they look at you. I'm asked all the time at the prison, why do I smile? Why am I happy? Why am I in a good mood? And I love being asked that question because I get to tell them all about Jesus. Uh and if I sit in and talk with anybody, they're going to hear about Jesus because he's always in the forefront of my mind somewhere. So I will talk about having gone to church, having taught, you know, what, what I taught, you know, how good God is and how he's blessed and all these different things and open up the, the avenue to talk about Jesus. Is Jesus on the forefront of your mind? Is he somebody that you talk about? You know, we all know what is important to people when we spend time with them. You hang around with somebody who's a football fanatic and you're gonna, you know that within minutes of time meeting them or sometime during, during 10 or 20, 30-minute conversation, they're going to talk about their football team. You know, if they're into some kind of hobby, you know that after a few minutes they're going to talk about their hobby. How long can you go without talking about Jesus with, with people? This is an important question because it really does show where your heart is. Out of the abundance of our heart, we speak and we act. So is God centered enough in our life that we talk about him? And I don't talk about him just because I'm a pastor. I talk to about him because I always have. Even long before I was a pastor as a teenager, I talked about Jesus. Now, now I've had I have other interests, and again if you every time you see your family member, if you're talking about Jesus and they're not interested in Jesus, and that's all you ever talk about, it won't be long before you're not seeing your family member. They're gonna go, uh, nope, uh, there they are. Go, start, turn around, go the other direction. So I may need to talk about football or hobbies or the, the, the newest movie or whatever will interest them, and bring Jesus in on every other conversation or every third conversation. Because if I'm always talking about him, they're not going to want to talk to me. But is he forefront in your mind that he gets talked about? Is he part of who you talk about and how you live? Every one of our neighbors knows that we're Christians. Partially because they see us go to church every Sunday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Partially because Sam talks to everybody. And I've also talked to my nearest neighbors and and know who they are and I've talked to them about God. You know, because it's important. It's important. You know, I don't know my neighbors real well, but I definitely want to know that they're going to heaven. Are they going to heaven or not? Because the last thing you want to do is live next to somebody for 15, 20 years and have them go to hell, even if they don't become a friend. You know, they're just my neighbor. We need to be able to say, do we love people enough to say, hell is so bad, I don't want to see anybody go there. If we forget about the, how bad hell is, we're not motivated to talk about Jesus. Because what are we saving people from? If we're not really thinking about that, it's a problem. Jesus talked about hell all the time. Because you have to be delivered from something to want to be saved. And that's the whole process of this. If we're not being delivered for something, why get saved? Now, if I'm out, if I'm out swimming and I'm swimming laps out on in the, in the lake, and the lifeguard comes out and says, "I'm here to save you," I'm going to look at them like, "What's your problem?" I'm not. I don't need. A, I don't need. I don't need to be saved. People need to understand that there's something that they need to be saved from. You know, some people will think, "Well, if I'm just good enough, God will accept me." Well, God's standard is perfection. That's not good enough. Well, if I just, you know. Say enough prayers, go to to church enough, God will take me. No, God says you have to be perfect. These are the very important things for us to understand. And our perfection is in Jesus Christ. (laughs) When I get saved, I'm clothed in Jesus Christ, and the Father looks down at me and He says, Oh, I see Jesus. He doesn't see me, He doesn't see you when when you're a Christian. He sees Jesus. And that allows us to be clothed right to enter into heaven because we stand before him in the righteousness of Christ. And he says, oh, there's my perfect child. Come on in. And it's all, the, all that it matters. So we see here all of these things going on. Hadda, uh, Haziel murders the king, takes his place, and we're going to see a couple other vignettes next week. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, teach us to be more faithful for you in all aspects of our life, that you will be centered, that you will be be ours, and that we will learn to just follow you in all that we do and to seek you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says,